On this episode, I got a chance to talk to my friend and fellow Dragon Boat teammate, Maria Balistrieri. We talked about her initial diagnosis of breast cancer and how she wishes she had done more to possibly prevent another diagnosis 18 months later. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here with Maria, an 11-year breast cancer survivor from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I know Maria from Pink Still Dragon Boating Team. We paddled together for many years and were able to paddle internationally in Sarasota, Florida. So welcome to the podcast, Maria. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right in and talk a little bit about your story, your journey through breast cancer. So tell me, how old were you when you were diagnosed? I had just turned 40. What was interesting is that a couple of months before I was diagnosed, I had gone to a hypnotist in August of the year before I was diagnosed and was able to successfully quit smoking. And over the next couple of months, I lost 30 pounds. So it was almost like my body was being prepared for the idea that I was going to have surgery and that I was going to deal with all of the intricacies of this disease. Right. Well, that's, so you went to the hypnotist, that's okay, you went to the hypnotist for stopping the smoking. To stop smoking and to lose weight. And then also, okay, also to lose weight. So, Mm -hmm. um, okay, so you were 40 when you were diagnosed, and then what was your diagnosis? What was your stage? Well, I was diagnosed with, I was initially diagnosed with stage one. But as I underwent the lumpectomy, they found that it was in my sentinel node. So that made me a stage 2A. And I was estrogen positive and progesterone positive. And I was also HER2 new negative. Oh, okay. So I don't know that I've, honestly, I don't know that I've met anyone that was ER and PR positive. So the estrogen and progesterone positive, as well as the HER2 Mm-hmm. I don't know that oh, I... Oh, no, I was HER2 negative. Oh, you were HER2 negative. Okay, yes. okay. I was going to say, I don't think that I've ever heard of anyone that had that experience. <laughs> so, okay, okay. So, so did you find your lump or did you go in for a mammogram? Like, how did you, how did you find... Well, it's really interesting. <laughs> I had been... I started going for mammograms when I was 35 because my mother is also a cancer survivor. The very first time they did a mammogram for me, I I had 
two lumps that needed to be removed. So I needed to have two biopsies. So pretty much after that, I was having regular mammograms, generally once a year, but for the last six months, they kept on watching something and I don't know what they were watching. I had gotten a notification in September, one one of the times, like I said, that that I went in September of 2007. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> in 2007, I had gone to my regular scheduled mammogram and they had said that I was not due back for another year. So I wasn't supposed to be back until the following September. In the meantime, I did feel a lump, but I kept on assuring myself that because they didn't feel the need for a mammogram that I was probably overreacting. I had taken a student teaching position because I was finishing up my master's at that time. And I had given myself one week between student teaching and returning back to work full time. And I waited until a week before my student teaching was ending. And I said, I said, do you happen to have any, any times for a mammogram? And they were like, Oh yeah. Somebody actually just called in and canceled. <laughs> wow. So I went to that mammogram and that's when I found out. Okay. So, so I know so that I, the I, recommendation. I found it. Oh. I'm sorry. That's okay. I found it. But I ignored it for okay. four months. <laughs> and I think that's common sometimes that yeah. we as women tend to do that. So you were going for mammograms before the age of 40, which is not very typical. Correct. Because there were, you ha- there were things that they were observing. Okay. But even... Uh, no, because, because my mother was a breast cancer survivor. Okay. Okay. And then, so do you have the genetic mutation... I do not. I did go to go for that test, but it said that it was inconclusive. So okay, it's not necessarily no, but right, it was inconclusive. Okay, so you were going a little bit earlier than what the typical recommendation is for correct mammograms. Okay, but even on that mammogram, the last one you had found, they or the last one you'd had, they hadn't found anything that kind of stood out. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So once you did the mammogram, then did you have to do a biopsy in terms of like the fine needle aspiration biopsy or what was the next step in your, in your process? Yes. Then obviously whenever I went for my mammogram, I went as a diagnostic mammogram. So I had the ultrasound right there that day and they did suggest that I go for the biopsy. I remember going through the biopsy and they and 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 the person that did my biopsy said she wanted to look at it through the microscope and I didn't think that was a really good sign. And so at some point then you know the the assistant asked her pink or blue and she said pink. So I really didn't think that was a good sign. My mother's oncologist, my mother had two different types of cancer. And her oncologist was very familiar with the family. And so we asked him to kind of keep an eye out for the results. 
So I got the results three days later. Wow, that's a fast turnaround. A <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's a very fast turnaround. I guess it pays to know someone. <laughs> <laughs> or to have a good relationship with your doctor, I suppose. <laughs> right. And then I saw him the very next day. Oh, wow. So, so was that doctor the doctor that told you that or did you yes. get a... Yes. Okay. Okay. So that doctor was not the same doctor that had performed the tests. Correct. Um, did you go through your gynecologist to get that diagnostic mammogram or did you go through that? I'm assuming maybe it's your primary care physician. Yes. Pri- my primary care physician. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. Well, that makes sense then. So is there any other family history that you have in terms of cancer? You know, whether it's the breast cancer, you know, I know for the BRCA2 mutation or the BRCA1 even that there's colon cancer, brain cancer, prostate cancer, you know, those Mm -hmm. kind of things. But do you have, you know, other than your mom, is there significant history? Okay. Yes. My mother actually had cancer twice. Right. Um, You said that. Her breast cancer her breast cancer was stage zero, but her colon cancer, she had colon cancer a year after the breast cancer, and it was stage three. Her mother died of colon cancer, and her father died of lymphoma. So it's really pretty much all over my mother's side of the family. On my dad's side of the family, there are three family members. My my grandfather and two aunts passed away from cancer. So okay. I did have a lot in my family. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it definitely sounds like there's, you know, a, a number of family members that were impacted by that. So mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about your course of treatment. So did you have to do, you said initially you did a lumpectomy, but then, you know, so it, was there then, did you do mastectomy? Did you um, have chemo, well, radiation? Surgically, whenever they did the regular lumpectomy, again, they did not feel like they had clean margins. And I actually found out through an online support group that that is typical. I was not informed of that by my surgeon. But apparently it happens quite frequently that they end up having to go in and do a second surgery. So I had my first surgery on May 21st, and I had the second one on June 18th. So I had two surgeries within a month. The second surgery was, like I said, to get clean margins, but it was also to do an axillary node dissection. So they took out nine nodes. Okay. And when you say nodes, you're meaning lymph nodes, right? Yes. Yes. And as far as my medical treatment goes, originally my doctor had said that he wanted to do chemo. He told me exactly what he wanted me to do. And, you know, and that was that. But then I had done my own research and I knew that there was the genotype test. The and Oncotype DX? Yes, Oncotype okay. DX. Okay. Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> I, hear <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, so I asked him to do the Oncotype test. He did the Oncotype test and turned it into the insurance as though I did not have any spread to my lymph nodes. When that 
test came back, it showed that I only had a 7% chance of recurrence. So he suggested that instead of doing chemo, that we just hold off on that and do tamoxifen and radiation. His thinking was that, and I'm not, (laughs) his thinking was that if I had a recurrence years down the road, that we would still have the chemo route available to us and we would still be like the first line of defense in terms of the chemo drugs. Right. I, I I felt okay about it, um, but the honest truth was I, you know, I probably would have felt better if I would have been treated fully. Um, But again, I was perfectly okay with what he did. It was just that I almost feel like, I don't know. I I don't know how to describe it. No, in any event. I guess what I'm hearing um, you say is that you feel like in hindsight that the, you would have opted potentially for doing chemotherapy. Yes. Even though I have not had a recurrence of my breast cancer. Right. I just, I just feel like I would feel better. I would feel less at risk if I had gone through everything. Okay. So that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, I think the the biggest thing is that, you know, everybody's so different in terms of their journey with breast cancer, that there's nothing that's right or wrong, right? You know, like it's, you know, you just kind of do the best that you can with the information that you have at the time, you know, but certainly our hope is that this information will be helpful for somebody else that's kind of going through this and making some some pretty significant decisions. So let's go, I want to revisit that Oncotype DX because I, Mm -hmm. I think there might be some people that don't know what that means. So that Oncotype DX, and I had it done as well. So it's a blood test. Right. Yeah. Where they're looking at the potential recurrence. And my doctor did the same thing where, you know, he used that information to determine the necessity for chemotherapy. So I kind of fell in that middle range Mm -hmm. for the need for chemotherapies. Just my risk for recurrence was a little bit higher than yours. So we ended up doing something different, but that Oncotype DX test is pretty informative in terms of, you know, people that really do need to have that chemotherapy and then people who might be kind of in that middle range and then maybe that low risk. But I feel like yeah, it's a good um, tool to help people decide. Well, again, it's been 11 years for me, but I noticed back then that very few doctors were aware of it or were or were advocating it i mean i pretty much had to advocate that for myself you know whereas i would have expected him to say well let's do this you know right right so so maybe there's a better understanding now from a medical perspective right we can of doing that (laughs) yes we can definitely (laughs) hope so so how often do you go back now for follow-up now it's a year now i still go back every year okay and so when you go back every year who do you see you had talked about so you did the the radiation correct i did tamoxifen and radiation okay and immediately i was concerned about tamoxifen i don't know whether it was just 
you know, my negative thinking or what. But, you know, I mean, on the computer, I have found that it causes endometrial cancer in one of every 500 women. And so I actually really didn't want to do the tamoxifen, but I wanted to do something besides just radiation. And the doctor reassured me that most likely... I would not suffer any consequences as a result. However, <laughs> I was just going to ask. So what what have you experienced with tamoxifen? I ended up with endometrial cancer. Oh, you did? I did. I did. And um, when was that? That was 18 months after I started treatment. Wow. So, so I was diagnosed in November of 2000 and nine or 10, 2010, I guess. I had been having difficulties pretty much from the get-go. And I went through several endometrial biopsies and several ultrasounds and none of them were conclusive. And, and basically the gynecologist that I went to kind of blew me off, kind of, kind of, kept making me jump through hoops before he would do anything. And finally, it was almost like just to appease me. He said, well, you know, we'll schedule you for a DNC. Three days later, somebody that I had never met, I mean, because my doctor was going off to have surgery of his own. And three days later, somebody that I did not ever meet called me and said in a very monotone, at work, <laughs> that that I had that I needed to go to a gynecologic oncologist because yes, I did have cancer. Oh my gosh! Oh my mm -hmm. gosh! I I just real quick will share with you that I had a very similar experience where you I did. got the phone call at work, and yeah, it was from somebody that I didn't know, and that was mm -hmm. probably one of the hardest things to experience for me personally. And it's and it's just so, you know, it's something that they're used to dealing with every day. So it's not a difficult, con so there wasn't that empathetic feeling, I right. guess is what I would say. You know, it was just like, oh yeah, yep, you have cancer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's just and, like, you know, oh yeah, I'll be over to, you know, set up your cable between exactly. two and four. You know, it was yeah, exactly. very much that um, same kind of conversation. Yes, and I worked in a difficult field. I worked in a very emotionally charged field. So to have that information conveyed to me by phone was not a good idea. No. So, so what happened in terms of that? I, I mean, that led to another surgery. Did that? It did. Radiation. Um, Whenever I, whenever I was diagnosed in November, I saw the gynecologic oncologist right away, and he was wonderful. He had a great bedside manner, and he was so knowledgeable. He's one of the finest surgeons that they have in Pittsburgh, and he wanted to schedule me pretty much right away. At least that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, because I was taking the tamoxifen, which I immediately stopped taking once I got my diagnosis, because I had taken it, it has a blood clotting factor, not 
you know, not clotting. Right. So he had to wait from November to January. So I got my second surgery on January 5th. And I, and because it was due to a cancer diagnosis, they could not do just a regular laparoscopic hysterectomy. This was abdominal hysterectomy. They were looking everywhere to see whether or not it had spread. It was very, it was a very intense procedure. And I was off work and pretty much bed bound for about six weeks. Okay. And so they took out ovary, fallopian, okay, fallopian tubes, everything, uterus. Everything. Okay. Okay. Wow. I, I did not know that. Yes. I did not know that that was part of your story. Not that we ever really, you know, paddled in the boat and talked about our stories, um, mm. you know, but, but I had no idea that that was also a part of your story. So when, so you said that you go back once a year. So I'm assuming that when you go back once a year, you're seeing a number of doctors. So who are you still seeing at this point for kind of your follow-up care? Well, I see my PCP on a regular basis several times a year. And then I see my gynecologist once a, week, once a year. And I see my oncologist once a year as well. Okay. And so are you on any medications now? Did they suggest that you take an aromatase inhibitor? No. No? no. Okay. Okay. I can... That was one question that I asked and, and, and he said no. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure. I know, you know, with, with the tamoxifen, typically it's the recommendation is for five years. Now it's 10, um, mm-hmm. you know, and once you've had that removal of your ovaries or the hysterectomy and oophorectomy, or you hit menopause, then they suggest the aromatase inhibitors. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can definitely appreciate the, the concerns with tamoxifen. Mine actually sat on my coffee table for seven days before I took it. So okay. <laughs> I, I can appreciate that. So, so Tell me a little bit about your support system. So who was a part of your support system? You know, who were the people that you kind of surrounded yourself to help you get through that? And not just once, but twice. Well, I'm really, really blessed because first of all, I have my faith community. So I really believe, I believe in that everything is in God's hands. And I believe that you know, whatever he brings you to, he'll bring you through. So my church was a source of comfort for me. My family was a source of comfort for me tremendously. I'm very, I'm very close with everybody in my family, especially my mother, because like I said, she was a cancer survivor. So it kind of felt like that was an experience that we could share, that we could grow through and bond but tremendously, I was also impacted by my friends. The day that I got my original diagnosis was Cinco de Mayo, oh. and I had and and I had gotten the phone call at like seven thirty, and In my neighbor had night. called. Now at night, at night, and my neighbor had called me 
And she said, how are you doing? I said, well, not real good. I said, I just, I just got diagnosed with breast cancer. And she said, I'll be right up. And we went to a neighborhood bar and, and kind of dealt with it that way. Another neighbor, another neighbor went to my first radiation treatment with me. Oh, wow. And I've got to say, my radiation team really was part of my support team. I'm actually still friends with one of my radiologists online. Oh, that's um, nice. <laughs> yes. And it, it, I had two wonderful, wonderful people as, as the radiation techs. And I remember one day in particular, whenever I, I was really I think it was the tamoxifen. I had had a really bad day and, you know, they had asked me how I was and I said, I'm fine. And as soon as I said, I'm fine, I started bawling. Well, I was already positioned <laughs> in the, in the machine. So, you know, I had no way of wiping my tears and one of them, wiped my tears Aww. and the other one whenever I whenever I left she said uh, she gave me a set of beads that I still have and said and just once you get to sh- because you showed me your boobs you get <laughs> you get beads <laughs> it was like right around Marty girl <laughs> yeah oh my gosh and like I said I'm still I'm still friends with her on Facebook. The connections that we make sometimes with the people that are treating us is amazing to have those relationships that, you know, over the course of 11 years, you know, you still Mm -hmm. have that, that relationship. So that's pretty awesome. So I want to ask, what was, what would you say would be the most valuable lesson that you learned either through your diagnosis or throughout your journey? What is that one thing that just kind of, you're like, didn't think I'd learn this, but I did, and it's it's been. Can I do helpful. two things? <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so the first thing, obviously, is to live each moment as though you don't have them promised to you. I started, you know, people people start crossing things off their bucket list at fifty or. Or 60, I started immediately crossing things off my bucket list. I did everything that had been afraid to go to do, jumped out of a balloon. I mean, I'm sorry, I jumped out of a <laughs> airplane. I did a hot air balloon. Yeah, but I don't think um, they suggest you jump out of those. Yeah. <laughs> the airplane is okay. You usually have something strapped to you, but the hot air balloon, probably not a good idea. Yeah. So we'll we'll scratch that off from any recommendation. (laughs) It really, it really did give me a sense of, you know, instead of life, instead of living life, you should, you should fully participate in life, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That's a good Um, one. Yeah. So, so that's one thing. The other thing is to tell you the truth. One, uh, the paddling ha- has been exceptional for me. Um, so when you're talking reason, about paddling, you're talking about dragon boat paddling. Dragon boat racing, yes. It has really been transformative in my life. The way that I, I've always had a 
negative self-image. I've always worried that I was, you know, too overweight, that I was, you know, not in good shape, that I, you know, I just constantly berated myself about how I was. And I actually, starting from the moment that I got onto the boat, it was instantaneous. I just realized, you know, I've been betraying my body because my body has made me healthy enough to, you know, walk around, to explore things. You know, my body has, you know, I, I just got a sense of, of self-image just from, just from knowing that even though it's not perfect, my body has really done some things that I never would have expected. I, before, before I paddled on the dragon boat, I had never participated in any sport, whether it's individual or team. I had never challenged myself in any way. And to see how well I did whenever I did start challenging myself, it was, was fantastic. And I just started thinking that instead of being wrapped up in what we look like, we should be wrapped up in our abilities to overcome. I love overcome that. Overcome obstacles. I love that. Like I feel Um, like so many, so many of us come into dragon boating or whatever, whatever it is that we may find through this journey. And we come into it for so many different reasons. And what we get from it is so different from one person to the next, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's pretty cool to, to hear that, you know, you kind of had that, that sense of, you know, self-love, it sounds like, and just appreciating your body for what it is and, you know, we all come in different shapes and sizes and, you know, abilities and just being grateful for the one that we have because we only get mm-hmm. one. Can't return exactly. it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.